After a short break, we are back. I'm Tracy Dufters, and this is Friends of Europe's Frankly Speaking podcast, with a special focus on the war in Ukraine. This week, I'm joined by senior fellows Paul Taylor, former Reuters journalist, contributing editor at Politico, and author of our Black Sea Report, and Jamie Shea, former Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Emerging Security Challenges at NATO. It's now 57 days since the war in Ukraine started. Having failed to seize Kiev, the Russian offensive has shifted eastwards. The battle for Donbass risks being the bloodiest yet, with the next few weeks likely to shape the outcome of the war. The West have rushed to provide more heavy weapons in the hopes of supporting Ukrainians to push back the advancing Russian army. But will it be enough? Will soldiers on the ground be trained in time to be able to use the new weapons? And what's the risk that Putin will attack weapons transports? These are some of the questions I put to our fellows today. We also take a look at the closing round of the presidential elections in France and their impact on the war in Ukraine, as well as wider implications for the EU and NATO. Join us and find out what our experts have to say. So I'd like to start this morning with my first question to Jamie. Having failed to seize Kiev, we see now that the Russian offensive has started in the eastern Donbass region, which will engage both sides in enlarged tank warfare, no doubt, in open fields, quite different from the urban battle we've seen so far. Do you think that the Ukrainians have the means to fight back? Well, good morning, Tracy. Good morning, Paul. They're, they're certainly trying, and uh, naturally, they've anticipated this change in Russian tactics for some time. Uh, and as you know, President Zelensky has been calling on the West, the NATO countries in particular, to provide him with more artillery, uh, more heavy uh, vehicles, more sophisticated air defense systems and drones, multiple uh, rocket launchers, these kind of things that uh, the Ukrainians would need to block a, a Russian offensive. And of course, uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen uh, since the uh, the NATO summit three weeks ago now, uh, some indications that the United States in particular, with an extra package of $800 million of aid, the UK uh, and some other countries uh, are willing to provide this heavier equipment. Uh, indeed, uh, just um, uh, yesterday, the Pentagon confirmed that uh, uh, spare parts had been supplied to the Ukrainians uh, to allow 20 extra aircraft uh, to get up uh, in the uh, uh, air. Uh, we've seen pictures already some days ago of uh, the Czechs uh, uh, supplying uh, on rail uh, trucks, uh, uh, C-72 tanks and all of the rest. So uh, certainly uh, the Ukrainians are now getting the heavier equipment that they're going to need, as I said. The question, of course, is will they be able to get it in sufficient quantities, fast enough? Uh, the Ukrainians are still running a, an open controversy with Berlin uh, over the refusal of the uh, Schultz uh, government to supply the kinds of heavy weaponry uh, uh, that they want to the Germans are, are parrying that by saying that their supplies are almost exhausted uh, and they need what's left uh, for their uh, NATO obligations. Uh, but uh, all I can say is that we'll have to see in, in the couple of uh, weeks ahead how it all goes. I mean, the other factor uh, naturally is that the Ukrainians know this territory well. 
they're dug in into a First World War uh, uh, style of uh, trench uh, fortifications, uh, where, of course, they've been fighting the Russian separatists in the Donbass, in Luhansk and Donetsk uh, since uh, 2014. They have their most battle-hardened uh, experienced uh, forces uh, there. Uh, they know the terrain. And you uh, also, Tracy, mentioned the terrain. And yes, it's true that uh, this area in eastern Ukraine is much more suitable for conventional open warfare wide open spaces but of course the spring and the summer uh, are arriving the ground is going to get churned up and get muddy very quickly it's not as good uh, for tank warfare uh, as the hardened ground during the winter months uh, yesterday we saw some reports also that the ukrainians uh, have um, uh, uh, blown up a dam uh, in order to flood uh, some of this uh, terrain to make it harder for the russians to operate as well but on the other hand we have to be realistic uh, the U ukrainian are still largely outmatched by the Russians uh, when it comes to missiles, of course, and heavy armor. They know that. Uh, obviously, the Russians are now focusing their effort uh, in the east, so one would expect them to be more concentrated. Uh, they've got a new commander uh, in charge, so we're going to have to see how uh, he uh, uh, fares. Their supply lines, of course, are shorter uh, because they're now operating much closer to Russian territory. And we know from US uh, sources uh, that they're introduced uh, about 15% additional so-called battalion tactical groups uh, in the fight. Uh, so they're certainly putting in the packet uh, hope in the hope, I think, for President Putin that he'll pull off some kind of victory uh, 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 for the May 9th uh, military uh, parade uh, in Moscow. Um, but it's going to be a tough fight. Uh, the other thing, finally, is, is that up to now, the uh, NATO countries have been really supplying the Ukrainians with uh, old Soviet uh, military equipment, uh, which the Eastern European members of NATO, because of the old Warsaw Pact days, had in their stocks. Uh, this is the equipment, of course, that the Ukrainians are familiar with, S-300 air defense systems, uh, those kind of things, uh, uh, old Soviet era uh, helicopters. But uh, those stocks are getting uh, uh, depleted very, very quickly. And so I think, you know, if this war goes on, the real challenge uh, is going to be for the West to sort of convert the Ukrainians to Western military equipment, where, of course, the defense industry production lines uh, are more likely to be running uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, but that means, of course, uh, training uh, the Ukrainians quickly in how to use that Western military equipment and, of course, the willingness to continue to provide the money to the defense contractors to produce uh, uh, that equipment in extra large quantities because NATO needs it as well uh, for its reinforcement uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, and of course, uh, the Ukrainians have uh, been getting all of this stuff free. Will they get it for free uh, for the indefinite future? So uh, there's a big question mark, I think, around all of this. Yeah, and many questions there. I mean, you, you mentioned, of course, that uh, the West is sending heavy weapons um, and will they arrive in time? But obviously the key question is, Will there be enough time to train Ukrainian soldiers to use the heavy weapons that are being sent? Well, that, that I think, uh, as the Americans used to say, is the $64,000 question. Certainly an effort's being made. We know that training is going on in Poland and, and elsewhere. Uh, for example, uh, the uh, United States had quite a few Ukrainian uh, military officers uh, under the NATO Partnership for Peace uh, program uh, being trained in their military academies. And when the, the United States uh, decided to give switchblade uh, sophisticated drones uh, to uh, uh, the Ukrainians to 
so-called kamikaze uh, drones. They immediately <laughs> took these Ukrainian officers out of the military academies and sent them off to be trained in the uh, use of drones. I mean, the, the concept is also one which is familiar in NATO called train the trainers, where you know you, you have a, a, a small group of Ukrainians being trained uh, and they then go back over the border into Ukraine with the know-how to pass the training down uh, to uh, the uh, ranks immediately below. Hopefully that's going to work. I mean, the um, some NATO countries, the Czech Republic, Poland, have been offering to repair damaged equipment uh, to get that back into the field. Uh, the polls the other day also said that they would keep 10,000 hospital beds available to treat uh, uh, Ukrainian soldiers who were injured. So all of this uh, activity, the training, the equipment, the spare parts, the repair, uh, the medical uh, uh, help, it is designed to keep the Ukrainians in the fight for as long as possible, naturally, in the hope of blunting the Russian offensive, uh, inflicting a second humiliation on Putin uh, after the failure of the first uh, offensive, and then hopefully getting the Russians to take a, a ceasefire and, and talks and some kind of political settlement more seriously than they have done up until now. But of course, on the other hand, just to repeat, uh, Putin, having faced a humiliation, won't want another one at all costs, particularly after losing uh, the flagship of the Russian uh, Black Sea fleet, the Moskov, in recent days. So the Russians obviously are going to uh, uh, really uh, double down. And we're going to have, uh, I think, some pretty bloody fighting over the next few weeks, at least. Now, with the West obviously stepping up its support in providing more weapons to Ukraine, is there a risk that Putin will carry out his threats to attack weapons transports? Um, very briefly, Tracy, because I think it's time to bring Paul in here. Yes, um, uh, they're already trying to do that. I mean, they've been attacking, obviously, the Ukrainian production facilities around Kiev and Lvov, uh, the ammunition storage depots, the fuel depots, as well as uh, those uh, factories where the Ukrainians were still producing their own defense equipment. It's difficult to know exactly how successful they've been. The Ukrainians naturally have been very coy uh, at releasing any kind of battle damage assessment. They don't want that to come out publicly. Publicly. Uh, and we know also, of course, that the Russians have been attacking the, uh, the rail system because a lot of this equipment is being transported by rail. I mean, obviously, you have to hope and assume uh, that the NATO countries have anticipated all of this and have found uh, diversified routes uh, uh, with uh, small amounts of equipment uh, being transferred, probably at night via multiple routes to make it harder for the Russians to interdict uh, these supplies. But, but I imagine that, yes, as the equipment becomes heavier, it's going to be less easy to hide. I mean, it, it, you know, I could put a Javelin uh, uh, anti-tank system in my suitcase, Tracy, and take it across the frontier uh, disguised as a tourist, but uh, much harder to do that with a big uh, T-72 tank or a massive S-300 uh, air defense system. Yeah, I think I can add to that. I would simply say um, the Russians certainly have been trying to attack these supply lines um, where they've been able to hit things with missiles, which are uh, uh, fixed objects on the ground, uh, uh, weapons storage sites, uh, production sites, and so on. Uh, they've probably had some success, although, as Jamie says, this is very secretive. And the, the whole shadow war around arms supplies, arms supply routes, um, uh, how, how stuff is getting in, where it's going, and so on, uh, it, it will make the stuff of fantastic post-war books. But, um, uh, you know, the fact is that the Russians still don't have uh, air superiority uh, in Ukraine and certainly not in Western Ukraine through which uh, this material is, is transiting. So most of these attacks are being 
uh, conducted from a long distance by missile um, and uh, uh, not by uh, air, um, you know aircraft that are actually able to go and uh, do ground attack. Um, so that reduces the effectiveness of Russia's ability to um, uh, uh, attack these supply lines. So I think that the, the, behind your question is the question, might Putin be tempted to go further and attack um, the supply lines before material actually enters Ukraine? Uh, but that's on NATO territory, uh, particularly in Poland. I very much doubt that. He came quite close by attacking uh, a military base where there had been um, training of foreign uh, volunteers uh, for Ukrainian forces a, a few weeks ago, and that was seen as a warning to NATO. But to actually attack any target on NATO territory is to invite a, a, a real widening of the conflict, to draw NATO into it. I don't think that that's in Putin's interest. Paul, I'll ask stay with you for this uh, next question. Um, so this weekend, we have the closing round of elections of the French presidency. Some reports suggest Marine Le Pen has never been closer to taking France's highest office. As a known supporter of Putin, what would such a win mean for EU, NATO and the war in Ukraine? Well, first of all, I think I can reassure you that uh, uh, Marine Le, Putin, uh, Le Pen, sorry, <laughs> Freudian slip, Marine Le Putin, uh, Marine Le Pen victory uh, is highly unlikely, and I don't think she came any nearer in last night's television debate. In that debate, President Macron uh, sought to tie her very closely to Russia and said that when you talk to Russia, you're talking to your banker, uh, because he pointed out that she'd taken a, a loan from a bank close to the Kremlin uh, and still uh, was still repaying it um, uh, five years later and that in fact, she was uh, therefore not politically independent. He pointed out that she'd been among the first to uh, recognize uh, Russia's annexation of Crimea. Um, and uh, she uh, basically uh, sought to get around that by saying that her policy on Russia had been exactly the same as Macron's, that she too had condemned the invasion. The only difference was, she said, um, that she opposed any sanction which inflicted uh, a higher cost of living on the French people. Um, so that was uh, clearly intended to mean uh, sanctions on Russian energy supplies. And that I think is gonna be one of the big dividing lines, remains one of the big dividing lines within the European Union, um, whoever wins the French presidency. That said, um, I think that there is a, a lot of holding of breath around Europe this weekend because um, uh, if Marine Le Pen were uh, to, to, to score an upset victory, um, it really would overturn um, uh, the European Union initially. Um, uh, it would, it, it's not so much her proximity to Putin, in my view, uh, which was uh, misjudged, but um, many people misjudged uh, Russia, including um, the, the current leaders of Germany and a number of other countries. Um, and uh, I'm sure that she would do what she could to distance herself from her past uh, positions. But um, the fact is that a France that is viscerally opposed as she is to the very nature, um, the, the, the supranational nature of the European Union, who wants to roll back the EU to a, a Europe of nations, um, uh, even though she no longer advocates 
um, an exit from the Eurozone or an exit from the EU, as she has done in past campaigns, um, uh, she would be very much the odd woman out. She would diminish France's standing both uh, within uh, the EU and within NATO. Um, she wants to leave the military command of NATO. So imagine her uh, starting to negotiate that in the middle of a period where NATO unity is so important. That would certainly be uh, a weakening of both the EU position and of NATO's position. As I say, I think there's very little chance of that happening, but I can well understand why people are concerned about it. The other thing, of course, is that Marine Le Pen would not initially um, have a parliamentary majority. There are parliamentary elections in June, and um, it's not clear that her party would win a majority there, even if she were to win the presidency. So she would have to, obviously, as the French say, put a lot of water in her wine. Um, she would have to find ways of walking back, I think, some of her uh, more radical positions. Uh, but in order to do that, there would be a prolonged period of uncertainty uh, as to what, where, in fact, France stood. Now, this is a time where France is holding the rotating presidency of the uh, Council of Ministers of the European Union. So although um, you know, EU, the EU works to a large degree on autopilot with the Brussels institutions really in the, in, in the driver's seat and member states taking then the ultimate decisions, it would still be a big uh, disruption. And I think something that would cause a lot of trauma in the European Union. Thank you. Um, Jamie, I don't know if you want to add a few words about what it would mean for NATO. I, I can briefly, although I always defer to Paul's uh, uh, connaissance de la France. Uh, but uh, on NATO, yes, uh, uh, this would be a blow uh, to the extent that uh, France would once again, as Paul said, come out of the uh, integrated uh, command structure and therefore joint NATO planning uh, at precisely the moment, of course, when NATO is trying to do even more of this uh, because of the increased uh, perception of a threat from Russia uh, and the need to send uh, further forces to Central and Eastern Europe. France has been playing quite an important role in that effort because, of course, it's one of the continent's biggest military powers. Uh, for example, France recently agreed to take over the lead of the new NATO multinational battalion, which is going to be sent to uh, Romania. It's deployed extra aircraft and, and troops also to the uh, Baltic states. And if Marine Le Pen decides to bring those uh, troops home, it's going to leave some big gaps in, in NATO's uh, forward defence posture. It's going to send a very bad message to the US Congress when it comes to more burden sharing uh, between the, the United States and uh, Europe as well. Of course, certain things would not change because even after President Sarkozy uh, brought uh, France back into NATO's integrated command structure in 2009, uh, he did not put French nuclear weapons uh, in that uh, joint planning structure, uh, unlike like the weapons of the United States and the United uh, Kingdom. And I would never see Marine Le Pen uh, giving given her emphasis, as Paul rightly said, on the on French sovereignty, uh, being willing to do that. But but still, yes, uh, I think Paul makes the decisive point that this is a moment when the West is pulling together uh, the Quad, uh, the, these regular sessions uh, which have been expanded to other countries, but the core group of Germany, uh, the United Kingdom, France, the US has been working again uh, in, in terms of coordinating a grand strategy. You know, Biden had a call with the Quad uh, uh, plus the Poles and the Japanese just a couple of days ago. Uh, 
Um, and again, if Marine Le Pen uh, uh, then uh, delivers also on a promise to cancel some of the cooperative uh, uh, arms development programs with Germany, you know, for example, like the future combat aircraft system, you know, many of those people who like European strategic autonomy and uh, a greater role for Europe, of course, are banking on Franco-German defense cooperation going forward. And with a, a Le Pen victory, there would be this enormous irony that, uh, you know, the, the moment when the Germans finally seem to be taking defense seriously, which Macron was very frustrated about in the Merkel years, uh, you know, the Germans are going to meet the 2% of GDP target on defense spending. The Germans are, are going to spend 100 billion euros on modernizing the Bundeswehr. You know, normally a, a French president would see this as a great opportunity to have more joint programs and really, you know, build that Franco-German axis around which European defense could be built. And at the moment, you know, the, the Germans are up for it. Uh, the French suddenly are no longer up for it. Uh, so uh, uh, that would, I think, be very frustrating for those EU ambitions. Uh, uh, one, one final point in, you know, there's also a lot of going on, of course, over the Atlantic at the moment with the EU-US uh, Trade and Technology Council, you know, to harmonize standards, to build a more integrated technology market, uh, to deal with the challenge of China, uh, particularly in the technology and the trade area, uh, and not only with Russia, uh, and a more souverainist uh, France under Le Pen might be, you know, far less interested in that. Um, all of it could sort of contribute in the United States to a view that uh, uh, they really do now have to focus on, 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 on China uh, and maybe less on, on, on Europe. So again, I, I Paul, Paul, Paul's right. I mean, we have to wait and see if the bark is as worse uh, as the bite. Uh, if Le Pen were to be elected, it would depend, of course, on the parliament. It would depend upon the advisors, the people around her. But, you know, you can afford a Hungary or maybe a Poland or maybe a Turkey, you know, being uh, sort of on the margins, being the naysayers. But when a central country of EU and transatlantic solidarity like France falls out of the system, then, as the Americans like to say, Houston, we have a problem. That's a great way to end uh, today's podcast, Jamie. Um, thank you very much to both you and Paul for joining this week. We'll be back next week and hopefully it'll be under a President Macron in France. <laughs>